It's not about, it's not determinism because I, I don't know, but I do know what matters to me. And I know the things that I want in terms of my well-being and being well. And so I try to be intentional about that. I think that's being a learner. Where are the conversations happening that we need to amplify? Where in fact the care and the development of children and adults is taking place and with wonderful uh, manifestations of it. And great, so here's the opportunity to step out of this bondage of data and staid language, these labels, these acronyms, this terminology, and actually with the tools that we have available, capture them, evoke them. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is David Penberg. David is an urban and international educator, teacher, and writer with 40 years of experience. His work is place-based and intergenerational, and he supports communities seeking to become more vital, joyous, and integrated places of learning. He's held leadership and teaching roles in nonprofits, community-based organizations, independent international and charter schools, and in higher education. And his love for learning and interest in people are rooted in a belief in agency and democratic practices. And David is my friend, and I've known him for, I guess, six, seven years now, as we met uh, when we were transitioning to go to Saudi Arabia for an exciting pedagogical project. And David was the inspiration for me to really explore so many different avenues in pedagogy, but also in terms of creating culture within schools, cultures of care, cultures of love, love of learning, love of children, love of becoming, love of excitement, love of taking risks, love of creativity. This is the conversation about those things, about care, about how we respond to the world as the world, about how our role as nature allows us to conceptualize learning in different ways. And yet within the systems that we are in, where are the points of resistance? Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And I'll leave space for my conversation with David. David, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We have known each other for years. Uh, you brought me uh, over to Saudi. I stranded you in Saudi. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and we have connected ever since and, and spoken regularly ever since. And uh, you've been a real inspiration um, in my life. And I'm just really keen to talk to you about uh, some of the things that we talk about on a regular basis. So we'll condense years of conversation into a uh, 45 to 60 minute podcast. So let's let's see how that how that plays out. Um, I, I'll start with the question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Well, nominally, I'm David Penberg. I'm a, a writer, an educator, lifelong educator, and I reside in the Hudson Valley in New York State. I don't know that there's one story, Benjamin, that I want to tell because I'm made up of, like all of us, many stories, you know. Um, but since we're both educators, learners, I suppose thinking about um, the significant experiences I've had as, as a as a learner, um, as a human being. Uh, that would make sense and maybe share some meaning with others. Um, but actually, it all begins with my family. So it all has to go back to the kitchens of my grandparents, 
and and this filial connection with aunts and uncles and cousins um did i say grandparents they were central and um having this tribe of adults um usher me into the world help me become model for me what it is to be a good human being but it was in these informal sunday gatherings um learning how to become a good human being i think that had a lot to do with my upbringing um which was not religious but it was it certainly was human and loving um and working class and um I think it had a lot to do with why I became who I am and still seeking to become. So, yeah, the importance of nurturing adults, food, um, conversation, um, and relationships. So, so it starts there in the Bronx, in a part of the world called the Bronx, right? Which was just really an important part of um, my stories as for education, I think about my richest experiences growing up were not in school, except a very short episode. They were in the summers. They were, it was informal. It was growing up, uh, in camp. I was fortunate enough for my parents to send my brother and myself from age. I was, I was going to, I was six years old. Yeah. And, um, being from the Bronx and growing up in an apartment and where there were no animals. And I don't remember trees. I remember schoolyards and concrete and, uh, playing in the street. It was, um, it would shape my life to this, to this day. So exposure to lakes, to trees, to animals, uh, to, to sports, but in a very non-competitive, but really playful, um, way. It was in the Berkshires, so a beautiful part of New York, of, of, of Massachusetts. Um, so those outdoor experiences, being away from home, um, learning how to be on my own, although my big brother was always there, much to his chagrin in terms of taking care of me. Um, but the experience of camp in so many ways embodies the stuff that doesn't happen or that we control <laughs> or don't even give thought to in formal um, learning in school. I like to think of that experience being that, that the best of schools resemble the best qualities of camp. Um, so so that that's an important and I did that for 10 years. So it was really but a pivotal part of my development. Um, and unbeknownst to me, I would seek to reproduce that as an educator later in my life with programs that I designed, bringing young people from urban settings up to, um, um, to natural settings and, and creating opportunities for all kinds of play and learning to happen. Um, what I'm picking up here, as you described your family of conversation, being cared for, learning to be a good human, relationships, conversation, those are some of the things that we've talked about are important in, in schools and, and the relationships that we have in schools. And, and I know that's what I already mentioned, but just that dynamic. 
you mentioned this idea of camp and and some of the things that the good things that happen at camp. Now we're not talking about completely crazy, just messing around. There's like there's a learning component. I'm, I'm keen to explore that. Before we do so, I'm going to ask you, what does learning mean to you? It's indivisible from being David Penberg or a human being. It's it's what I do the moment I open my eyes, as well as close it, uh, close them. Right? I mean, it's being, it's being open responsive, receptive, aware, um, noticing that bird, um, every morning at the same time and appreciating the music that it brings to my life. Uh, is it a, is it a muscle that you develop over time and, and when you neglect it, um, so does your life, um, perhaps yeah, um, I don't want to make it, uh, it, I, it's not an abstract thing. It is, it comes from the inside out. It defines who we are and, and, and what gives us purpose, uh, which is to always be asking questions and wondering and questioning and doubting and, um, yeah, it's an, it's, it's active. That's why it's a gerund. Um, and I've spent too many, too much time in schools, however, where everything is done to actually uh, retard learning um, at its at its most natural. You know, and that's that's been very problematic, right? In terms of what we dis what we discover in schools that that don't have a regard for learning or 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 adults who have lost touch with learning in their own lives. Um, I think that the way you describe learning, it, it, there's a simplicity to it. And maybe that's where it gives its, its power of waking up, noticing, uh, just being. Um, again, I'll, I'll still come back to those relationships, those conversations. It feels very simple. And I'm not saying simple is a bad thing, on the contrary. But, but actually... Learning is, is is tremendously complex at the same time. There, there's this kind of yin and yang going on of simplicity and complexity when it comes to learning. I, I'm keen to explore that simplicity, that that walking in, in the woods, noticing, feeling, touching, sensing, but also maybe some more of the complexities because it's not so easy. And it's not just a question of go out in the woods. I mean, it is, but it's not. And, 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 and there's that tension. How, how do we play with that tension? No, right. That's, that's good. That's, yeah. Yeah. But we acknowledge it. We understand the conflictive nature of also being human. And that is because also learning is, is social. Uh, so there is, a, there, there is the interaction and that involves others. Um, and that brings a whole other way of learning how to be. Learning how to um, disagree learning how to um, express feelings, learning how to become a social being. Um, that to me is the complex, conflictive, but also beautiful part of being um, a human and therefore a learning being. Um, and then of course there's, there's living in systems that inhibit um, learning and inhibit conversation and inhibit uh, the, the, the healthy development 
of, uh, of children into young adults. Um, add to the mix adults <laughs> who themselves um, are, are um, in varying degrees of consciousness and awareness and the kind of control and authority that they have um, over the lives of, of the children and young people they teach. There's that level of complexity. Um, so the yin and the yang, the balance of the two, uh, yeah, there's, that's, I think that's a good notion of, of a balance. Um, there is a, the importance of being able to, um, accompany yourself and to listen to yourself and to be inward and how you develop that as a skill, teaching that to kids, but at the same time, the skills that are involved in navigating the world of how to ask questions, of how to be respectful, of how to listen, um, of how to be vigilant. Um, I mean, all, all of those things. So what was, isn't it Whitehead who said that there's only one curriculum and that's life. Um, and, and yet, and so how do we be intentional? How to be intentional? Yeah. I, I love this notion of intentionality and really contrasting that with this idea of determinism. And I know a lot of times we talk about schools, about how it's Victorian model, industrial model, and people on conveyor belts. I think it goes deeper than that. And it's this idea of determinism where if I do this, then this will be the result. If I teach this standard way, if I um, go through this process, these models, these textbooks, this standardized assessment, something else will happen. It's, it's very mechanistic, whereas what you're talking about is intention, but intention doesn't necessarily lead to, well, often seldom leads to known results. We have intentions and something else can happen. Again, where, where do we play with this, which isn't necessarily in harmony? On the contrary, this is where it might be a little bit more conflictive. That's good. It's, I think you, you just said, how do we play with this? Um, how do we play with it? How do we innovate with it? How do we um, improvise with it? Um, I mean, specifically, like if, if I know that it's, it's really important for young people to know that I see them, then I'm going to, I'm going to do things, I'm going to act and maybe create opportunities that they know that I see them and that they see each other. Now, I don't know what those activities or those reflections or whatever that interaction might be, what the outcomes will be, but I do know, or I, my belief is that it will stretch young people. Uh, to feel welcome, to feel that they are seen, that they are valued. So there's intentionality. There's intentionality of my wanting to bring one dose of joy, play, into my classroom um, or into my home <laughs> on a daily basis. Now, I don't know necessarily what that is going to look like. Um, or, or what's going to transpire, but I go into it with the intention of whether it is sipping my coffee when it's really 
the eye very slowly and look out the window at that those 30 seconds um are is my dose of happiness um who knows maybe that that encourages me to um read 20 pages of deborah myers because of it um so this balance between intentionality and i it's not about it's not determinism because i i don't know but i do know what matters to me and i know the things that i want in terms of my well-being and being well and so I try to be intentional about that. I think that's being a learner back to the idea of what, what it means to me. You're living well. Let's talk about Deborah Meyer. Um, that takes us, you know, a, a few, a few years back when, 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 when I, when I listen to, to, to what you say, and when I think about, um, you know, you bring up Deborah Meyer, you went back further with, with Whitehead and we could throw some Dewey in there. And, and we're, we're really talking about at least a hundred years of, conversations about putting children in a place of care and having the children care for each other and the earth. And, and we're still having the same conversations. We're still looking back and, and bringing up ideas that, that are not new. Um, and yet the system is still such, actually probably in many respects, um, more dangerous than before COVID because now we're so afraid of learning loss that we double down. Why are we still having the conversations four generations later? So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play with your question and say, well, actually, where are the conversations happening that we need to amplify? Where, in fact, the care and the development of children and adults is taking place, and with um, wonderful um, manifestations of it. I'm not gonna say outcomes, results, right? Um, what are those conversations? What, what is happening in those places? And in fact, yes, there has historically been a, um, a disease of, of, of a lack of imagination, um, in our field, right. That so heavily relies on acronyms and slogans and labels, reductionist thinking, that yeah, the landscape feels like yeah, I've been reading and hearing this shit for decades. So I just, but so, so, and language has a lot to do with it and the lack of imagination. Um, a really fine educational scholar and writer is Mike Rose. And he, he wrote a lot about that in terms of the lack of imagination or the need for <laughs> infusing multiple ways of thinking about and therefore communicating about learning and teaching. Um, as to the stasis, as to why we are using the same terminology and the same, the same answers, the same old question, we're asking all the wrong questions for one thing. Maybe I'll delete the wrong. We're, we're just misguided in the kinds of questions that the public conversation about learning and teaching um, is, no? So, so where, where are the conversations that are uplifting, elevating, illuminating, exciting, <laughs> um, challenging, and in fact, 
um, did I say inspiring? Because that's what we need to be to be doing is breathing life um, into all of us that really care about finally with with young people getting it right. And these stories that we tell, that we try to amplify, that we find inspiring and maybe we tell and add a little bit of our own chapter and tell it to other folks and it spreads in, in such a way. Where are those cracks? And, and, and I use uh, the term cracks that's maybe a little bit overused sometime, but it is in those cracks that we need to, to, to think about how to make those cracks maybe bigger. Um, where, where can we play with, with this in, in a system that still has independent schools that care about this narrative of university, the state schools, the public schools are crushed with, with these tests? Where are we to turn um, to be able to, to, to amplify the voices and, and spread open those cracks? You're talking about uh, redeeming a broken system. And and I don't know and I don't know about the logic of fixing uh, either lives or or a system that is very clearly in the process of of falling apart. Um, but I'm drawn to those who are still defying logic of standardized thinking and standardized teaching, and that's. And that's still going on in different pockets in the United States, right? Um, Jersey City. So a brand new charter school um, beginning with, with sixth graders that that is attempting to impart a very different vision and practice of, of teaching and learning and, and facing all kinds of challenges, but that's a crack. That's a crack in the system that, uh, that at least in theory, that charter, charter schools can be qualitatively different, but under the same broken system of standardized tests and, uh, and what, and standardized curriculum. Um, there's places, you know, there's places like, uh, in Brooklyn, El Puente, a high school for social justice that has made really, I mean, that's, those are stories that I think need to be so amplified about how you teach democratic behavior, how, how are you, and thinking of Deborah Myers, right? Thinking about what does it mean to become an educated citizen, right? That was what she implored teachers all the time to consider. Um, it's a school that emerged out of a community center that was a vital part of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, and had a really strong cultural and political presence. And the high school is a living example of when that fusion can, can occur between a community and school and the notion of, of a true ecology is at work, um, in an urban setting. So that's another, so, so I, I'm drawn to those that are that are defiant of the disregard for human development of children and adults, and that truly believe that education can um, can heal and can help rebuild communities. And you use the word defiant. I was thinking resistance when you were describing. You yeah. Know, maybe maybe taking from 
from Paulo Freire, which again was way back when a few years, but nevertheless. Oh, but uh, you, uh, um, I'm glad you you know invoke Freire because he's he's has living in evidence of what El Puente does, because it's also this is a part of Brooklyn that has tremendous issues around environmental um, racism and um, and health. Um, and so it, they're, they're, they're a political body. They've really learned what it means to organize and to be participants. Um, so yeah, defiance, uh, not merely in the philosophical sense, but as activists, environmental activists that, um, are seeking to prevent what has gone on for decades in terms of environmental pollution. Um, but also um they 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 have something called the green zone and it's converting all of south williamsburg into a green zone not only of living things trees parks but also cultural events or cultural life and 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 approaching in a really interesting integrated way so yes um thank you for invoking paulo freire he's alive and well in uh, in in south brooklyn Williamsburg. So, so this brings me to um, uh, an interesting um, direction. I hope for 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 you, for for our listeners, and that's this idea of uh, education for sustainability. And you know, I'm at the Green School, so I, I'm not taking it in that sense. I'm I'm thinking more in terms of some of the urban schools, the schools that maybe are not, or they say that they're not able to access nature, which is, I think, the you know. Um, uh, not, not necessarily the, the 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 most skillful way of looking at um, the positionality and and nature, but what they do for sustainability oftentimes is is set up these recycling centers and solar panels and try to measure their carbon footprint and and those are actually wonderful things. I, I'm not denying, and there's a lot of people doing great work here. I'm certainly not denying that. But we talk about solar panels, and when we talk about recycling, and we talk about making sure we conserve water, that could happen at Unilever, that could happen at you know your your city hall, that could happen anywhere. That's that's an operational thing rather than a pedagogical thing. And what I'm interested in, what you just mentioned, this story is the greening of the spaces and the bringing together of the community, which isn't operational because it's alive, and that's where I can see some of those pedagogical entry points about how to make that happen. And I'm thinking specifically of what happened with museums during COVID, how they had to work with community in order to really stay alive because nobody can go to the museum. So what did they do? I mean, I know I think uh, the um, uh, the Museum of uh, Modern Art, was it, I, in New York? I, I believe it was, went to... Um, uh, older people's homes and, and and brought the museum to them rather than than, than the other way. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is is how can we work with this idea of community so the school goes beyond itself and replenishes, revitalizes, regenerates the community and has that be the central point of learning experiences? I love the word replenishment um, because that that is what we're desperately in need of in our in our communities, right? And school is a part of community, but it has been apart from community life forever, um, at least yeah, during the industrialized world history. Um, 
two people come to mind that that really thought about these things uh, who are not educators. Well, actually, one was one is Paul Goodman um, and and his brother uh, Percival and this book called Communitas that they wrote in the early 1950s uh, about green zones and communities that would community gardens at the time. Uh, but where there was a participatory sense of you belong by having ownership of your neighborhood where you lived. The other person is Jane Jacobs, the great city planner who saved Greenwich Village, who saved um, Chinatown uh, from from realtors like Robert Moses, but who envisioned, who understood the nature of um, urban life being outside and being social and um the importance of accommodating those spaces. Schools have, have been, I mean, they've been, they've been fortressed. They are fortresses um, from the scanning, the scanners in, in many lobbies of, of high schools um, to the, the, the presence of security guards. Right. Um, That is the the only way that I see schools becoming living spaces again, vital parts of their communities, is um, recognizing that they cannot be isolated any longer, that teaching can't be relegated to just the classroom. Rather, and this is an idea of, of, of Paul Goodman's, the, the, the city as, as school, the city as classroom. Uh, in fact, city as school is, still exists and is that model of <laughs> let's deploy the adventuresome, curious, uh, social parts of, of being a young adult and let's maximize the city and its resources as a, as a learning experience that we can plan. Um, the community garden movement in in places like New York, Chicago, Baltimore, the whole East Coast, which is what I would most know, has really played a significant part of renewing the sense of people belonging not only to their neighborhood, but also that to the earth um, and growing and creating gardens and gardens becoming then centers of cultural life and social life uh, and then making connections with schools for food pantries and for kids to be involved in the actual um, maintenance um, and uh, and care of the gardens. Um, that's happening. Yeah, that to me. Represents the kind of um, and it's interesting that they are gardens that are that are kind of um, so pivotal here of the ways that um new relationships can be can 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 be planned and allowed to happen so that's not only between members of the community and 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 children but also i'm thinking of older adults and the role that they play in education historically and the role that they've played in terms of their conspicuous um segregation from the, the, the teaching of children today. So every community has, or should, its libraries, its gardens, its theaters, its doctor's offices, its butchers, its um, 
understanding that we're all we are all a learning community. <laughs> and so the invitation of school folks with community folks begins with tapping into that incredible resource. I'm, I'm kind of going off here, but that's what I um, that's what I imagine, at least in, in the in an urban setting. But it has so much to do with creating new relationships, um, seeing that teachers are everywhere amongst us. <laughs> let's 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 channel that capacity, particularly in older adults. Talk about not only storytelling, but historical knowledge, professional knowledge. Um, and the umbilical connection that has that has really been severed uh, between how culture gets transmitted with older folks and, and young people. That's part of, I think, sustainability. <laughs> That's how we will um, recreate healthier, um, happier um, places of learning, mean, more meaningful places of learning. And then the question that people may ask is the more technical question, the more systemic question, which is how, those stories, they're wonderful. How do we evidence them? How do we document them? And I don't mean in terms of report cards, but I mean in, in the literal sense of documentation, how do we capture them, grasp them? Uh, great. So here's the opportunity to step out of this um, bondage of data and stayed language, these labels, these acronyms, this terminology. And actually, with the tools that we have available, <laughs> capture them, evoke them. That, that, so I'm talking about a multimedia way of telling our stories. Uh, that is research, that is participatory, <laughs> that is real and meaningful, and that that generates or can generate important conversations, seminal questions, inquiry, right? Um, so it's expanding our grasp of how we tell stories and giving ourselves license to doing those things. So if that means using my iPhone to um, take photographs of kids playing in a schoolyard over the course of um, six months and starting to do informal uh, conversations with them. Um, maybe there are really important stories that I I gather from that and 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 can share it um, with others. Um, yeah, using the tools at our disposal and our imaginations to tell these important stories. David, what are some of the things that you're working on nowadays? <laughs> yeah, I laugh <laughs> because it is making me laugh. I mean, I'm, it's, it's, it's a source of joy. Well, so one of them is just this is, um, I have a, a treasure trove of voices of, of audio interviews that I had done for my dissertation in the early nineties. And, uh, they were with the students that I worked with. Um, out of the Liberty Partnership Program at Bank Street College. Mostly kids of color, at the time labeled at risk, and they were part of a, of a college prep program that I was the director of, the founding director of. Well, I'm, um, I'm writing a, an essay 
that I'm actually I will submit to uh, to the Bank Street occasional papers. But I'm taking these voices and I'm reassembling them because I think that they are charged. These children were 14 and 15 years old at the time. Right. This is 32 years later. Um, they're charged with insight, with wisdom, with hope, all the kinds of things that both young people and teachers need to be talking about and having conversations around. So I, I'm I'm playing with what. So I I envision a tool that comes out of this, and that tool is. Literally something that can trigger with prompts using the voices um, as in the categories that are coming out of it. Hope, belonging, community, uh, relationships, labels, uh, and as triggers for really provocative, important conversations that teachers, regardless of pre or in service, need to be having in their communities. And likewise, young people need to be having with themselves. So that's one that's um, uh, and that's uh, really exciting. Um, and and, you know, I'm uh, I am planning on going to India and and uh, working with the Augusta Foundation. And that um, is all about expanding my own. Uh, understanding of learning and teaching and um, and doing a residency at a in a space which is this intentionally designed um, sustainable learning uh, environment on 174 acres uh, and that are seeking to 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 draw the curiosity uh, and the creativity out of children, specifically through science, but also arts-related experiences. So it's like it's like living at a um, residential exploratorium and and learning what's transpiring. Why are kids having fun? What does play and learning uh, look like when it is full of energy and intentionality and, um, <laughs> uh, and how do you teach adults to become full of wonder and curious again? How do you give, how do you teach or create opportunities for teachers to, um, think about the reasons that became teachers to begin with? Uh, I'm interested in, all kinds of possibilities there without an agenda as of yet. Um, but so that will be in the summer. Um, and that uh, I see as a great opportunity to also convene other, other practitioners, thought partners like yourself, Benjamin, to have important conversations with folks that are also um, uh, elevating learning and, and the profession of teaching. And I'm finishing a book that's taken me, that's not taken me. Yeah, it has taken me. It's been an, uh, an, a journey. Uh, it's had me in its uh, grasp for 
um, five years. And, and that's important to, to complete it and to get it out, ship it out into the world. Um, and we're in being better human beings. You know? Listen, David, I want to thank you for your time. It's always really inspiring. And, and what I particularly appreciate about our conversations is, and, and I guess it's what we started off with, is, is just this idea of taking things that are simple and, and, and swirling them around with the complex and swirling them around back to the simple and, and having that flow. Because what you talk about is so incredibly deep, but with ability to, to access that, that really just makes it feel just right. Oh, uh, Benjamin... You're a good, you're a really good listener and I appreciate, um, I appreciate you and what you see in, in me. Uh, and our, our friendship is a really interesting one, how it has, um, shaped, you know, in the forms that it's taking. Um, and, and what you're doing, right, with Coconut King is is part of this this constellation of stars that are both defiant as well as hopeful. Um, And that's a beautiful thing, and I admire that in you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. You'll find articles there, resources, connections to more podcasts and also look at Intrepid Ed News, www.intrepidednews.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Leave us five stars, subscribe, and we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.